0: We didn't know how skilled Khan was. And Kun was just like, well, I'll do it all. It's fine. And I was like, okay, I've heard this story before. Like, You're not gonna do it all. Mm-hmm. He's like, no, 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 I'll do it all. He's like, trust me. He's like, I'll do it all. And at that point, I had built up a bit of trust because he was always- Meeting deadlines. Head- yeah, too. exactly. And he was doing good work. He said, I'll take on the entire project. And at that point too, he was part time. So he was doing it nice and weekends. He was missing some deadlines, hitting others. Um, in the end, he ended up continuously falling behind. Summer of 2017 came, we had no website, and we are like, what do we do? Welcome to Montreal Startups,
1: a show where we cover local, innovative, fast-growing companies and the inspiring stories behind them. On today's show, we talk to Mark Elliott, co-founder and CEO of Landscape Material Network, Go Materials. If you didn't go around your neighborhood offering to mow people's lawns to make some extra cash as a teenager, chances are you at least thought about it. And that's especially true if you have an entrepreneurial spirit. Those that did decide to put on their working hat and start mowing people's lawns might do it for a summer or two before losing interest in the labor-intensive work. That's pretty typical and understandable for most young teens, except for two brothers growing up in Montreal's West Island they decided to take their small, grass-cutting operation and grow it into a real business. Brotherhood, later renamed to Norstone, was founded by brothers Mark and Matt Elliott. Norstone grew like crazy and went on to employ over 70 employees and diversify their offerings to include commercial snow removal and Unistone. While working in the landscaping industry, the wheels started turning in Mark's head on how he could improve the process of sourcing materials. He started by identifying pain points between landscapers and vendors and then found two co-founders to launch a startup with him. The result? Go Materials, an innovative use of tech and marketplaces in a rather uninterrupted industry. Okay, so here's what you need to know about Mark. He got his first job at the young age of 12 years old, working for a small landscaping company after his father cut off his allowance. How did he convince this person to give him a job at the age of 12? Persistence. And where did that persistence come from? Well, a lot of that attitude came from his father, Bruce, who instilled self-sufficiency and hard work in him very early on.
0: Starting at 12, I had a summer job. I basically hustled my buddy's dad to, uh, to hiring me at his company. He was, he was hiring his son that same year to, uh, I guess, try and teach him the values of working and, and teach him the values that money's not free. So I kind of uh, squeezed myself in and said, hey, can I come work also? And he wasn't really into it at the beginning, but um, you know, persistence pays off. So I kept hassling him and hassling him, and he said, "Fine, I'll try it out." Within the first week, he loved me. I was it was so it was a landscaping job, um, and I was basically running to do everything. He told me go get this, I would run to do it. Told me go get that, I would run to do it. And I'd always say, "Okay, what's next? What are we doing?" Um, and I was always on the go. So hard work was something that I learned at a very early age, and the biggest thing my, my dad always wanted to teach us as kids is that money's not free, life isn't free, nothing comes free, work for what you get. Um, and you know it's it, it shows in myself and both my brothers and, and what we do today and how we work. And we all work long hours and we all put in the time because we know that that's going to pay off down the road.
1: What, what did you want to buy so badly as a 12-year-old? What did you spend that money on?
0: Honestly, at 12, I was making... About 300 bucks a week with no expenses. Um, None of it went into savings. I don't even know what I spent it on. And my lunches were paid for and my dinners were paid for because we'd work late often. But I have no clue what I spent it on. Probably (laughs) candy or some shit.
1: Probably things you didn't need, of course. (laughs) Yeah. So not only are you fostering kind of a mentality for for working hard uh, and gaining some valuable work experience, but you're also, whether you know it or not at the time, you're learning a lot about the landscaping industry did you know that this might be something that you want to get into more? And what did you what did you gain from from that by seeing your friend's dad's business operate?
0: I fell in love with it pretty quickly cuz I remember that same summer, you know, when when the owner of the company my friend's dad would would go for drives to see clients and stuff. So he would pick me up in the morning just just to take a step back. He would pick me up every morning and he he'd drop me off at the end of the day. I lived around the corner from him. So at the end of the day, on his way back from work, and he go see clients. I would go with him, and we'd always have conversations. And I remember him asking me, "So, what do you want to do when you're older?" And I remember telling him, "Well, I honestly love this job, and I want to own my own landscape business like you." And uh, he shut it down pretty fast. He said, "No, you don't want to do that. You don't. You don't understand how hard it is. Um, it's 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 something that you probably won't succeed in."
1: But what was it about landscaping that made you want to do like start your own business, start your own landscape company? Because I can't imagine a lot of 12-year-olds like to spend their summers sweating in the sun, mowing lawns, you know, cutting weeds. What was it about that?
0: So at that point, when I was working here with him, it wasn't mowing lawns. I was doing a lot of um, the hardscaping, uh, as you would call it, uh, um, which is the um, Unistone or uni, if you want to say it in French. So it was actually probably harder work. I was lifting 15, 20-pound stones all day long at 12. Um, but I don't know. I, I kind of... I feel like I looked up to the guy too, um, the, the owner of this company at that age. I feel like I looked up to him and thought he had a really cool life. He was at the time, he would always like spend a lot of money on his kid and he would always like entertain everybody and all that. And I thought it was really cool. So I think that's kind of what led it's me It's lifestyle it. that yeah. I saw his lifestyle and I thought it was really cool. But I also loved being outside. I'm I, And even to this day, I work in an office, but I love doing physical work. Um, on the weekends or Sundays, I often am doing work in my own backyard at home and stuff like that. So I think that's what I truly loved about it. And I like the results that you see from it too. So when you're doing a job at someone's house, you see the customer and you see how happy they are. And, you know, it's obviously you're doing these projects. People are very picky. They're spending hundreds of thousands on their home. But when you can actually see the final result and see the change that you made in their yard and the way they feel about their home, the biggest asset they probably have in their lives, is something pretty rewarding. So, so how much time did you spend at this, this company, this landscaping company? I spent, so I worked there uh, 12 years old at uh, the summer when I was 12, the summer when I was 13. At 14, his business wasn't doing so well, so I, he didn't end up hiring me that year. And then I went back at 15 for one year. I think at 14 or something like that, and then at the age of 15, he wasn't hiring anymore, and I think his business was kind of on the decline. He wasn't so good financially, and I guess that's why he was spending a lot on everyone else. Um, so his business did go in the decline, and that year, uh, my brother and myself kind of uh, said, "You know what? Let's let's open our our own business and let's give you us have a enough shot.
1: insight in the industry. You know how things
0: work. Uh- I thought I did. You thought you did, yeah, yeah. So the first year we opened that business, it, it didn't go so well.
1: Okay, what we was the be, name of
0: that that business? It was called Brotherhood Landscaping, and that went on for a couple of years. But that first year we opened the company, I was fifteen, my brother was eighteen. We had we had no understanding of business. You know, we thought we were just going to do it, and we were going to make a lot of money, and everything
1: will fall into place.
0: Yeah. So that first year we signed on about fifty customers, and. I would say lost pretty much all of them by the end of the summer. They weren't happy with your service. No, customer service was zero. <laughs> we we just didn't have the responsibility and the maturity, but so when we started that business, my father never gave us the money to start the business, but he co-signed on a loan so we can buy the equipment to start mm. the business. And when you have Twenty to twenty-five thousand dollars on the line at a fifteen-year-old—it's pretty stressful.
1: Backed by your father that you want to make proud, and and
0: yeah, and he would have made me repay him every penny. So, so when you realize you're losing all your customers, you got to figure things out pretty fast. The year after, we learned what customer services and what offering was a good service was. So the year after, we ended up signing on eighty customers, and the. Ended up keeping pretty much ninety to ninety five percent. The ones we didn't keep is because people would move homes or whatever it was.
1: We a big started... improvement, a lot of lessons learned, yeah. a lot of progress in that business.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: So, okay, so you're running. You're fifteen years old. You've You started your first business. You've learned a lot about business. Running a landscaping job, still in school, still studying. Um, what do you do next? Was, is your focus to continue to grow that business? Is that what you want to do long-term at that point?
0: Yeah, and, uh, and I always had the intention of doing that. So I was around 16 years old at that point, um, secondary four, uh, I guess, or grade grade 10. So my goal was, and, and what I was doing is, during the school year, um, so the landscape season would run from uh, May until end of November. So I, I'd have most of the summer where I could work full-time without any school distractions. And then when I was at school during those periods, I would go into work in the morning before school. So we had commercial properties that we were maintaining as well. I would start work at like 4 a.m., go to school for eight. And then after school, I would work or do homework if there was if there was still work left to be done and my brother wasn't finished, I'd go help him. So my goal was to always grow the company and I always had a vision of growing the company. And I did that right until university uh, and the end of university. So I never had any summer jobs. My summer jobs was always working for myself. And then even while I was going to school, I was probably putting in 40 to 50 hours a week at the company on top of that. I remember too, when you're growing up and you're a teenager, you love to sleep in. And I never got to sleep in on the weekends. And I remember on Sunday sometimes, Sunday was always kind of my relaxing day. And there was some Sundays that I'd be so grumpy because I'd had to work on Sunday because there was still stuff to get done. Yeah, you had a pretty uh, packed schedule. Yeah. So then... I did that right until the end of university and at university I graduated and was able to have a full-time job for myself and it was pretty cool. You leave university, all your friends are looking for jobs. You're like, well, I'm going to work for myself and at that point I had a pretty established company where I was able to pay myself a really good salary um, right out of university and um, the business was still growing.
1: So how how big was the business at that point? How big did you grow the company during those four or five years that studying uh, through school? Yeah,
0: so when I left university, we were probably about 25 employees. So I, I, I had... I had a and you are
1: offering a, a bigger range of services too at that point.
0: Yeah, so we just, that year that I left university, so what had happened is the guy I was actually working for when I was 12 years old, his business had continued to go into the decline and we were looking, so I was doing hardscaping with him, the, 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 the Unistone, and we were looking... We were a full just a maintenance service company, so the grass cutting, the gardens, trimming the hedges and the shrubs. And we were looking at expanding into the Unisone. So that year we ended up, his business, like his financials were terrible, but we, we basically bought out his assets and hired his employees. And he ended up coming to work for us. So we opened up two teams <laughs> So, uh, your
1: 12 year old mentor ends up being your your yeah. uh,
0: employee. And the one who told me I couldn't do it. And the one that's. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't think he remembered ever saying that to me, but it always stuck in my head. Because um, right. when someone tells me I can't do something, uh, I always take it as a challenge. Yeah. And I'm a very, very competitive person, and I've been my whole life. So, yeah, so we ended up buying him out uh, basically his assets, and and we hired a couple of his employees. There was a lot of really shitty ones. We We just didn't take them on. So he ended up working for us uh, that year and we got into the Unistone. So overall that year, including the the buyout, we had probably 25, 30 employees. Is that the year you changed your name as well? No, it was the following year. So after university, I worked at the company for a year um, and then we brought on an extra partner into the company. So my brother's friend was uh, working at uh, Megablocks, which is now owned by Mattel and it was his family's business. So he had kind of approached. I don't know how the conversation happened. I think he, he's best friends with my brother, so I think they were talking about it, and my brother told me about it. And I said, "Oh well, why don't we bring him in into the business as a partner?" You know, like he's obviously got good contacts, he's got bo- good business skills, um, great experience because he's been working at MegaBlocks and in kind of higher level positions. Um, mm-hmm. And he's he's had a really good experience. So we ended up making a deal in August of. So I ended up I graduated in December and then August of that year we ended up making a deal with him to uh, join the
1: company. And that really helped propel the company the, the name change, the new partner brought into the company, that really helps propel your business. All of a sudden you're you're running a pretty big yeah. landscaping company in the in the city of Montreal.
0: We just didn't want to be a lifestyle family business. We really wanted to uh, expand into cities. You know, we were looking, we were always had the goal in, in mind that we were- You're, you're looking open. for growth. Yeah, we want, always wanted, because landscape businesses are often one location. It's a family business, kind of mom and pop shop, but a really big mom and pop shop. Some of these companies do 10 to $30 million a year in revenues. Mm-hmm. But we always had the goal in mind that we had wanted multiple locations, multiple cities. So that's that's one of the biggest reasons why we did bring him on because we felt like he could um, help us expand on that vision. Obviously, we had the name we had chosen when we were fifteen years old was not a very good name, Brotherhood. Yeah, it was it was terrible, and he he said it from the beginning, and I was like, no hard feelings. It's pretty shitty. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so when he came on, we ended up uh, rebranding the whole company, which um, which he had um, a couple contacts at uh, MegaBlocks where. They, it was it was um, they were in advertising and and uh, the digital marketing and everything, and um, they ended up helping us rebrand the company, picking the colors. We chose the name. They designed the logo, and um, honestly, the colors were fantastic. There's bright yellow trucks across Montreal.
1: Yeah, and I'm sure anyone that's that's listening has probably seen those before too. They're kind of hard to miss. Big yellow yeah. trucks that say Northstone on the side. Exactly. And you had a lot of them going on. Um, offering a lot of different services at that time. So the, the business was was quite big and you are playing a very active role. You're one of the founding members in this this business. You got a lot of experience in the industry. You end up leaving the company. What what led to that decision to leave?
0: So after um, after um, Vic had joined the company, I was there maybe a year and a half, two years. And... You know, I was um, so we obviously all took roles within the business, and my role was focusing on um, the maintenance. So I was managing all our maintenance teams, which I had done prior. So when when my when we bought out the hardscape company, my brother was managing the hardscape. I was managing the maintenance, and when Vic came on, our goal was to expand the hardscape more because it's a lot more scalable of a revenue stream. Mm-hmm. So I was managing the hardscape. Uh the sorry, the maintenance while well, they were expanding the hardscape and I was in control of all the finances, uh, the bookkeeping, stuff like that, and the purchasing for so on the maintenance, we also did a lot of plantation and I was in, in charge of purchasing the plantation. They would purchase all the Unistone and stuff, which is a little more simpler of a process. But um as I was working at the company and you know, we started growing more and more, we started getting into bigger plantation jobs, we were doing commercial projects where you're spending 50 to 60 grand of plant material on one project. I started to notice um, as we grew, we were, we were kind of starting to work with more vendors, now trying to source more materials and become more cost efficient. I started to realize that vendors started having uh, big variances in prices on the same material. And it's, it's pretty much a commodity material. I mean, you buy a flower from one grower, from a flower to the next. it's A flower th- is a flower. whatever. You ca- a, a popular flower, call it a daylily it looks the same. I mean, one grower may grow it a bit better and it may be a little more thick, but when you're on most projects, no one's really going to notice. So I started to realize there was big price variances and, you know, there's a lot of vendors in the industry, not only with the price variances, there's a lot of inconsistencies in um, inventory on data, uh, inconsistencies on inventory and pricing, um, as well as the specs on the plant. So how tall it is, how wide it is. And To pass on that information and to process that information is extremely time consuming, especially when you're doing $60,000 projects. And when I say 60, I'm talking about 60 of purchasing of plant material. So the project's probably like 200 grand is what you're charging Mm -hmm. the customer. So as we started getting more and more into that... You're starting um, to
1: notice a problem in yeah, your industry. a problem yeah.
0: that I was dealing with myself. And I guess yeah. that's how most businesses start. Exactly, yeah. Is you go, well, this is pretty shitty. Yeah.
1: Let's let's fix it. And in an industry you know quite well at this point. Yeah,
0: I've, I grew up in the industry. I, right. I spent my summers since I was 12 years old in the industry. And everything I was doing other than school was working in this industry. Mm-hmm. So I got... I kind of... started seeing the problem. And then, you know, I started speaking to some friends about uh, the issue and kind of saying, this is how we could solve it. And at the same time, I was losing interest in my current business. And not because um, I fell out of love with landscaping, because I still love the industry and I still love landscaping. It was more so the um, scalability factor of, of the business I was in. I always wanted to start a business where I can make a big impact and build a big company. And the landscaping itself, I mean, running a landscape business is so reliant on high-skilled labor that if you really want to grow, it's finding the labor is hard and these guys are getting paid more and more every single year because there's more in demand. Mm-hmm. No one's really going into trades anymore. Everyone wants to get that finance degree, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Just a note for anyone if you're gonna work a job, go work landscaping or whatever, yeah. get a trade because some of these employees we were paying were 35 bucks an hour. Wow. If you if, there's not many people that make 35 bucks an hour out of school. So yeah, yeah. um, so I kind of just I was losing interest because I realized how difficult it was to scale it and Congrats to, to my old partners because they're doing a great job today. And I and you know I, I'm, I speak with my brother a lot, obviously, and they have a lot of great ideas on how they're going to scale their business. And they're actually bringing tech; they're spending a lot of money on tech right now and bringing tech into, the, into uh, the industry. But I kind of lost interest at that point, and I was losing interest. And I saw a problem how I can solve to bring by bringing tech into the industry and how I can scale it. And and leaving
1: leaving a family business. I mean, you know, you and your brother started this company quite a while ago. It's not an easy thing to do. What was that day like when you announced to your partners and mainly your brother that you're going to be moving on to something new that that you're working on?
0: Not as bad as you would think, because like me and my brother were always very good at separating work and family. So um, we were very professional in that sense, which people say never get into business with family. But I always like. Just based on my experience, I say it depends. Sometimes it can go bad and you gotta really be able to separate the differences.
1: Depends on your relationship with that family and Yeah.
0: So I mean me and my brother sometimes would get into arguments at work and then we'd and at this point when we started our business, we were living together too. So I'd come home we'd drive home to work together from yeah. work together.
1: Spend a lot of time together. Yeah.
0: Yeah, exactly. So when I told him I I remember we were literally walking in Fairview Mall and um, I ended up, I ended up, it was around Christmas, I think just before Christmas. And he was, he was basically like, are you sure? Like, that's what you want to do. Like this, the business is doing well. Like why, why do you want to leave? And, and I just said like, uh, I don't, you know, like I like to wake up in the morning and be truly excited to go to work. And I wasn't anymore because I was kind of, I'd kind of already checked out, I guess a bit. Like I was on to the next thing. And I said, I, I just I I can't focus and you know I'm mm-hmm. so he, he he understood and I honestly think they kind of saw it a bit. Like you can they see when someone isn't as focused and as dedicated in their work.
1: Mm-hmm. Um so okay so you decide to to leave this company that you spent that you founded that you grew you spent so much time on it was your baby but now you're on to something new in an industry you're familiar with but in sort of you know building a platform using tech that you're not so familiar with, so now you need to find co-founders. You need to you know get a find a new name for this business, build a website, build all these things. Where do you even start for that?
0: What was kind of good is I did a long transition out of um out of Northstone. um and honestly, I had been speaking with my two co-founders. I'd been speaking with Mike, which is one of my co-founders, who's a really good friend of mine. Before actually making the decision to announce to my partners that I wanted to leave, and I was, we were in contact about our like this current business idea that I wanted to that I'm working on now. We had already discussed it, so I already had my co-founders there. Kind of things were already a bit lined up, and my transition out of um, Northstone was a pretty long one. So I was able to pay myself a salary, and obviously there was um, a buyout involved, which helped pay me a salary for a long time. So. The transition out of the company, I was working on the side on um, on Go Materials, and I was at Northstone for about four months. So I had to train two people to take over my role, one to run the maintenance division, and then another one to run all the finances at the company. And that took about four months.
1: Hey everyone, just a quick word from our sponsor, Breather. Breather's mission is to empower companies with private workspace that helps them meet their full potential. Growing rapidly, Breather has a network of over 400 workspaces across 10 global markets available on demand for hours, days, or months at a time, with no membership or subscription fee. Visit breather.com to learn more. So tell us about Go Materials. What give us the the rundown? What does Go Materials do? What's the, the most like?
0: simplest explanation is we built a platform that sells landscape materials. Our biggest focus and seller is plant material. So sounds pretty exciting. <laughs> yeah. But but it, okay, so it's a, it's it's still
1: somewhat of a marketplace. Yes, um, and it's all built around a, a platform there's tech involved here yeah now you're you're a non-technical founder you chose other founders with with very high business skills to join you in building this company but also non-technical founders how do you tackle the technical side of this what was your approach to that
0: so it took us a long time obviously none of us had development skills and I was not willing to learn development skills um, So right away, we were on the hunt to find somebody. We asked, uh, I mean, I had friends or people that I knew in a second degree or third degree, whatever it is, and we'd ask around. And a lot of it, because of my age, I was being connected with people that are fresh out of university or kind of on their last year of their bachelor's in computer science. And um, it was very clear, like when we'd explain them what we wanted to build, that we needed someone with more experience, more senior. Yeah, and what I started to learn—I mean, I I did read up a lot on um, on actual development itself because I wanted to make sure that I can actually hold up a conversation when I'm speaking to someone. If you're going to lead a team, like at least know what you're talking about, right? Um, and what I started to learn is that when you're building out a website, as as we did, there's a back-end, a database, a front end, and people specialize in each each section of it. Right, so we're kind of like, well, shit. We don't want to find three people. We don't want to pay three people. Mm-hmm. We're a scrappy startup at this point. So then, to find someone that can really code properly out everything, I mean, they're obviously employees that are very in demand and probably earning one hundred fifty plus thousand dollars a year. We can't afford that either. So, I mean, we went. We actually used AngelList for a lot of uh, the people we found and interviewed, um, and we went through probably. Hundreds of interviews at coffee shops, not hundreds, but close to there. And we found a lot of people that were kind of capable, but then were demanding too much. They wanted too much equity or equity and a lot of pay. And I'm just like, well, it was kind of unreasonable what they're asking, but on the market, that's what they're worth. But right. you got to kind of convince people that. Hey, we're gonna be the next big startup. Um, you gotta you gotta sell it with confidence. You gotta believe in yourself, you gotta believe in what you're doing, and you gotta believe in where you're gonna go. And that's such a it's such an issue that so many non-technical co-founders face. They
1: you get such a good idea for a tech startup and you're so passionate about it, but then you gotta you gotta pour that passion onto a technical co-founder who's probably knows how much he's worth in the market. Um, you gotta reel him in with a really attractive offer and there you know ideas are a dime a dozen here so how what was it that really was the selling point to come on to go materials and build
0: this platform with you guys the biggest thing is you know if if you know someone that's a developer and they trust you and you have a relationship with them it's easy to get them or i wouldn't say easy but it's easier to get them on board to come in your, in your company because that relationship's already there but when you don't know a single developer well then you're they, they either think you're crazy or they just they just they, they want money. It's either they want money or they think of you're crazy and, and that's understandable because they it, need yeah. to protect yeah. themselves too. They need to be compensated.
1: they don't want to be wasting their time with someone that ha- has an idea that who knows how you're gonna execute it and yeah. and you know what you're gonna to bring to the table to push this along. So how did you get past that barrier that you're bringing up right now?
0: we We ended up meeting with um, a guy an angelist. Um, I'll give you his first name. It was yang. And he listened to what we had, uh, what we offered, we kind of pitched him and it almost seemed too good to be true and it kind of was. He was like, yeah, no problem, I could build it out. Um, take me three months. And I was like, three months? I was in shock, I'm like, everyone we was speaking to was saying it's too complicated or we need three people and it's gonna take a year, I said, how are you gonna do it in three months? He's like, no, 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 don't worry, I'll do it in three months. So we said, okay, so we had set up a schedule where like, he was working on a part-time, obviously he wasn't gonna come full-time, um, he said, I'll work on a part time. We'll do a bit of equity in the company and uh, and you can pay me a small amount. And uh, that's how it will work. So he started. You billing. guys are like, great, let's get started. Yeah. So he started building it out. We were meeting on a weekly basis, uh, basis, either on like an evening or a weekend mostly because he, he had a, a second job. And um, the meetings were basically to do a review of the work he had done the week before. Um, revise schedule and then do any fixes that need to be done so you obviously have a plan for someone to build it out and it's it's better to check it and have him fix it rather than build the whole thing out and then he has to go back and tear down some of his code so every week we we're meeting him it was like no i didn't have any time to do it oh or just like, oh, I didn't get that far and just like falling behind. You could tell it wasn't a priority for him. He's giving
1: you a run around.
0: Yeah, and I don't blame the guy. You could tell it wasn't a priority and um, he obviously didn't believe in what we were doing or was just trying to get money out of it and maybe said, oh, he probably thought it was easier to build out than what it was. Thought he could build it out, earn a bit of equity in the company, and make a buck um, in the future. And then it didn't turn out to be so easy. So because he was falling behind, we were like, okay, well, we need to bring someone on board. We got a launch in summer 2017. Our goal was to launch for summer 2017 in Montreal and do a pilot. And we were obviously way behind schedule at that point. So he had a friend that he used to work with at a company, brought his friend on board to help out with the coding. So his friend was going to work on the front end, and he was going to work on the back end. And then what started happening is his friend was meeting all his deadlines and was actually doing things on time and getting them done without any fixes. And he was never continued the same steps. Right. We kind of we split his work in half to help him. And he still didn't still even do half the work. Yeah, right. didn't even do half the work. So then what happened is his friend started picking up for his work to help us out. And I was like, wow, this guy's pretty good. incredible. Yeah, I was like, holy shit. And then it was around Christmas of uh, 2016. So we were we were had a goal to launch of 20 summer 2017. Is around Christmas 2016. Yang texts me and says, "Sorry, I'm out. I can't do this anymore." I was just like, "Shit!" It was a blessing in disguise. Like you obviously get stressed out at the at the point, but then you figure things out. And um, we said, "What are we going to do?" This guy was kind of leading it. He knew everything. He he knew the code. He had the repository. He was pretty good. He transferred everything over. We ended up messaging, so he didn't tell his friend he brought on. His friend's name was Kun chang so he didn't tell Kun Cheng that he was leaving. So we ended up calling up Kun and letting him know. And uh, we had a meeting with Kun, and we're like, "What do we do?" Because we didn't know how skilled Kun was. And Kun was just like, "Well, I'll do it all. It's fine." And I was like, "Okay, I've heard this story before. Like, you're not going to do it all." Mm-hmm. He's like, "No, no, no, I'll do it all." He's like, "Trust me." He's like, "I'll do it all." And at that point, I had built up a bit of trust because he was. Meeting deadlines. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And he was doing good work. He said, I'll take on the entire project. And at that point, too, he was part time. So he was doing it nice and weekends. He was missing some deadlines, hitting others. Um, in the end, he ended up continuously falling behind. Summer of 2017 came. We had no website. And we were like, what do we do? Because. But I imagine Yang didn't retain any equity at that no, point. No, 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 no. We had. That, so we had. We had, came back. we had signed contracts with him for equity. Um, At the beginning, and then had him retract everything, sign contracts to retract it all. Right. Yeah. So summer 2017 came. Website was not done. Um, We had a coder that was part time or CTO, whatever it is. So we said, "What do we do?" Like, because for landscaping, especially in our business and in in our climate, it's so seasonal. You miss the beginning of the summer. People aren't really looking for a new. a new supplier halfway through the summer. I mean, yeah. it happens, but it's, hard, it's a harder sell. It's an important deadline. Whereas when you catch them in their off season, it's an easier sell to get them to work with you. Right. So we ended up building our own database on Excel rather than doing it in uh, MySQL. We were, we were building them out on MySQL. We ended up building in Excel. We had, um, luckily, one of my co-founders, Shereen, um, had a boyfriend that works in investment banking and was a whiz with Excels. So he ended up coding an entire Excel sheet that mimicked what we wanted our website to do with the data. Wow. So we programmed all our own data um, and, and our databases into Excel. And if you look at MySQL and the way it's coded, it's it's kind of similar to Excel. And then he coded an Excel sheet to mimic what our website would do. That's, that's an
1: amazing yeah. fix to... To get to market and start you know validating your product, getting yeah. feedback, getting customers on board before perfecting I mean almost an MVP that, that you had right there. yeah it was. and how did that turn out? that must have been uh, given a lot of valuable lessons from launching that.
0: yeah so the first summer we launched um, with that um, so the way it would work is we built out a Google Doc where people can submit um, items that they want to buy from us or want pricing on. We would take that Excel sheet, we would input the pricing, send it off to them, and they can select the vendors they want to work with. So just to give you a bit of background on how the company works is we sell plant material, but the way we let customers do it is they submit lists of material or they can come onto our website and then we build out the optimal um, vendor and basket selection from them based on location. Uh, the type of plant material each vendor has, pricing, Price, yeah. and we've started to consider a lot of quality as well. Um, we realize it's it's an issue, quality. It's so it's a commodity product, but um, depending on the type of job the customer is doing, they may need better quality plant material. So we track all that with our vendors.
1: Wow, that's that's a huge value add to a.
0: Yeah, they don't have to worry about it. So a guy a who's running right, a company like I was at Northstone, um, rather than him doing it all in house um, and kind of dealing with all those headaches. He has one guy. He sends a list to. He gets all the pricing back. Says whether he has a high quality job or not, and goes, "Okay, this guy finds me the best pricing. Amazing." Yeah. So, um, so we ended up building that. Out of Excel and sorry. Sheet out. So and yeah. so,
1: your cut comes off. Of, you guys take a transaction fee, or yeah,
0: from the vendor. So, um, right now, and there's so at, there's no cost to the buyer in any way. Yeah, and our biggest reason was is is to gain market share. Right. Um, we want to take the cut from the vendor, and we've been challenged a lot on that. Because we do add a lot of value to the contractor. And It's like, why are you not charging him? Mm. So, our, our whole goal right now is market share. Um, and, you know, vendors, we take a cut. It's like, hey, we're a sales rep for you. If you're going to hire a sales rep, we're a sales rep that has a baseless salary and works purely off commission. So, you automatically have an ROI. Mm-hmm. Um, we're bringing you more sales.
1: So, the, so right now, the model as of today is still only taking a cut off the vendor. Yeah,
0: because we have a lot of markets we want to go into and we have a lot of market share we want to gain. So for the next little while, um, or whatever, for the next while, it's mm-hmm. it's going to be the same model. But we do have um, a lot of features we want to build in where we can start charging monthly fees and stuff like that for value added services that fees, connect yeah. with the platform. Right. Yeah.
1: So what what is the state of Go Materials today? What does the company look like right now, in terms of size, in terms of you know the amount of vendors you have on board, in terms of um, the platform that you've built out? I mean, it's a, it's a loaded question, but I'm, I'm like, what is the snapshot right now?
0: Yeah. So right now, um, so we we're expanding to the U.S. at the moment. We're I I guess you would say a soft launch. We're generating a lot of customers. We have a lot of signups. We've um, we've kind of like nail down our, our campaigns and how we enter markets and we so we doing Florida New York we learned a lot from entering into Florida um, we have a bunch of customers signing on a bunch of people doing quotes
1: customers you refer to as uh, buyers landscape you know? contractors contractors yeah. yeah and okay so you've entered you've entered states in in the US you've you've realized obviously this is a cyclical product in in Montreal winters are very quiet so yeah. you need you need you need a, you need a, a city that's uh, 365 and Florida is a perfect example of that. How do you enter a new city and enter a new market and start of making a buzz there and acquiring customers?
0: So the first thing we need to do, and, and it goes back to chicken and egg in any marketplace, um, we like to nail down our suppliers first for the specific reason that suppliers, they sign up with you. It's There's no monthly fees, there's no sign up fees. So if I get a sale with you, Okay, if I don't get a sale, you don't waste my time. And we make it really simple for them. You send us your your price list or availabilities that you have of what plants, what's your price, and we take care of the rest. And you'll integrate them on your platform. Yeah. So what we start with is the vendors. What we started doing now is we started and what we did with Florida is you get feet on the ground. So we spent about 6 to 7 weeks in Florida just doing nursery tours. The biggest reason is when you're talking to a guy on the phone or you see his website and something, a lot of them don't even have websites, how do you tell if he's really a legitimate grower? A, what kind of quality does he have? And then you get a feel for them too when you're there. So we did a lot of that um, for six to seven weeks. We visited over hundreds of nurseries and added most of them onto our platform. So I would say today we're close to 200 uh, suppliers on Go Materials. And um And then the customer side, I can't even put a number to it, but we're getting like five to ten signups a day at this point.
1: Yeah, and in terms of you bringing on suppliers, it almost feels like a little bit of the Airbnb story when they started expansion. So okay, they want to get into New York. Okay, to get into New York, we need suppliers, suppliers being home renters, right? They need to. We need to get feet on the ground there and help them take pictures of their homes and and get really you know involved on how to get onto the platform and start generating inventory for Airbnb yeah. to start. So what you guys did in this case is you got feet on the ground. You went to a lot of these nurseries. You you checked out their inventory and help and 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 ensure their integration on the platform. Now I imagine for ultimate scalability, you can't you don't wanna be getting feet on the ground in every state that you expand to. I mean and streamline that onboarding process.
0: When we first like said we were gonna open Florida, you know, we thought we were gonna do it like we did in Montreal, where we were contacting people on the phone. But in Montreal I had my network, so it kind of worked out. I knew who to contact, knew who to go to. Um and then when we were opening up Florida and we realized that, okay, this on the phone communication is not gonna work. There's a lot of details. We need to actually be there physically. There's no one else to really do it other than the founders themselves. So me and uh, one of my co-founders, Mike, um, we actually just said, screw it. We're gonna drive to Florida. Um, You're gonna drive to Florida? Yeah, because we're there for six to seven weeks. So if we fly there, then we got to rent a car for six to seven weeks and to cost $3,000 for the car. might as well have your own car now. there yeah we had to be scrappy um we his parents have a condo in um in fort lauderdale um we said we're gonna stay there avoid hotel fees and literally i was on vacation in in chile they called me they said mark we need to go to florida like it's gonna make the process a lot easier i said okay no problem so the week i got back from chile we left that same week um me and Mike left at five in the evening uh, on a, on a Saturday, and got there at Sunday at um, at like seven p.m. So we ended up doing it in twenty six hours. That's pretty good time. Yeah, we you we took didn't a stop. break. We oh, yeah, didn't stop. No, we did, we took like a couple of breaks. We didn't stop, and we were going like. You didn't take to a you Hawaii. didn't take a hotel break. No, nothing. No, no, no wow. nothing. So we we drove straight there, and we were exhausted, but we forced ourselves to do it because we had a meeting on Monday morning at 8 a.m. So we wow. said, we need to get there Sunday. We need to go grocery shopping. We need to get set up. And then we got to Florida. It was great. We had our own car. I had brought brought my own car. But what kind of sucked and defeated the whole purpose is while well, we were in Florida, my car broke down. Oh no. So we ended up having to spend 3,000 US to fix no. the car. <laughs> yeah. You had to fix it anyways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it uh, it kind of defeated the purpose of driving and all the savings we were saving. So while we were in Florida for about the, the six to seven weeks meeting with vendors, meeting with customers, what we did learn is um, there's a huge issue on uh, quality control there versus what we've experienced back in Canada. There's um, The market's more fragmented. There's probably over 300, 400 growers without the, within the state of Florida, maybe more. And there's a lot of mom and pop growers. There's a lot of Cubans that come over from Cuba, actually, and will just start farms So the quality isn't um, as well controlled or there's not as as many reputable farms. So what we started doing is actually hiring um, freelance horticulturists slash tigers to work with us. So whenever an order comes in, the date of the order set, we have um, a notification that will go out to our horticulturists that then ask them um, when they can tag prior to the job going out. So we send them out to the farm, they inspect the material and then we put a, um, it's basically a zip tie on the plant so it can't be removed because what we've also been hearing too is if you put something that can be removed, they'll remove it and put it on another plant and then send you their shittier shittier stock. So some of these vendors have shitty quality plants and they want to get rid of them because they're not going to be able to sell them to anyone else or it's harder to sell or you have to sell at a discount. So a lot of them try and get rid of them. So there's not as many reputable growers. And this doesn't
1: cut too much into your margin to be able to do this?
0: No, no, no. I mean, it's so what we really set up is, and we're we're still continuing and trying to set up is the way we pay them is after 15 miles, they get paid because the average American travels about 15 miles to work. So within every location, we kind of have vendors within um, horticulturists within 15 miles of those vendors. And if, if it's less than 15 miles, or sorry, more, um, it's not too far off. And then from there, once they get to the farm, they're paid by the hour to do the tagging. They drive back home, and usually it's about two three hours at a time. And our average order size, especially in Florida, is, is our average order size here was about four to five thousand dollars. And now we're going to Florida, and we see that it's actually getting larger. So on a four or five thousand dollar order, we're paying maybe two three points to ensure quality. So it's not it's not that much. right.
1: Yeah. So but so now the platform is at a stage where it's it's scaling. Go materials is scaling, entering new cities. What is the state of your your funding at this point? Has this all been bootstrapped up until this point? Have you taken any have you
0: raised a seed round yet? Um yeah, it's it's been all purely bootstrapped. So the founders have have put in all their own funds. I've been working for free at this point. And we're trying to get it to a point where we can have good um monthly recurring revenues. We've actually had a lot of talks with VCs and and have learned a lot from speaking to them and where what they want to see and before they can invest in your business, so one was our, our monthly recurring revenues, the other one was ensuring that our business has you know a strong moat and that we're 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 a defensible business so that someone can't just come in and start slashing prices. So we are focusing a lot on those things um, before we do start raising. So we are at, we're not the, I wouldn't say we're in the the um, point of raising money, but now we're actually starting to uh, enter a lot of competitions so that way we can build our VC network even more, have more conversations but we'd probably be looking to raise towards the end of uh, 2019.
1: Looking to raise a seed round with
0: uh Yeah, I would say a large seed round. So where we want to take this, I mean, we do have our tech. In terms of the customer side, our tech is very minimal. And on the um, it's, it's really on our end. And the operational end is where we're building out our tech so we can scale the operation side of it. Because... What we want to do for our customers and our whole goal is is to make this whole process for them as easy and simple as possible. So we really focus on them having the least number of clicks to get to where they want to go. So on the customer end, they can submit a list online and then that's where our operation takes over. So a lot of our technology is in the back end of things. Um, and right now it's involved in the databases. But going forward and where we really want to invest in is. We really want to integrate with vendors' inventory. So in terms of plant material, inventory is... It's the hardest inventory you'll ever try and manage in your life. Um, There's no POS system that can manage this inventory. And for the specific reason is that it's living. So you have one thing that's 10 centimeters one month, the next month it's 20. And you have acres and acres and acres of land. Some vendors have over 3,000 acres to go and count all this inventory.
1: That sounds like a logistical nightmare.
0: Yeah, and there's no tags that can do it. So we want to build an inventory system that can do this. So the investments that we'd be looking for in the next year would be to continuously grow out and gain market share of our business. Because that's also a defense that you can have as a company. And that's what most of these marketplaces do is they gain market share. You're the first to do it. You have all the data. Why would someone go with someone else Mm -hmm. but then at the same time if we can help vendors manage their inventory there's no point for a vendor to work with anyone else and even if someone else comes out with the same inventory system well then we can offer it even cheaper because it can be subsidized by the materials that we sell and the money we make off those materials too.
1: The, this inventory management system, is that something that you're looking to build out internally or are you looking to create a partnership with a third party business? Because there are a lot of people built. Well, I don't know if there's a lot of people, but you know, you hear drone technology coming out to to tackle these farms, sorts of problems. Yeah. right. So yeah. mo-
0: the thing is most of it's on farms where it's the same product for acres. Whereas these vendors on a single farm can have anywhere from hundreds to thousands of different types of products and the measurements and all that that need to be taken. These products are very detailed. So there is technology where we can use to start off with. So there's many avenues that we can go about in terms of partnerships, buying someone out that already has technology that we can build off of. Um, And this is all things that we're kind of exploring now, but that's where, um, where we kind of want to go down the line.
1: You guys are a Montreal startup. You're base here in Montreal. Where, where's your
0: office? Um, so right now we're running our office out of um on Crescent. So corner of Crescent and de Maisonneuve. So we're running our office out of um a um a firm called BDG. And um we actually signed a a partnership with them to help them work with us and focus on scaling our customer base so that way we can, you know, build our revenues, build our market share. And um, we're working out of there right now.
1: So BDG provides office space and resources to you as a startup in exchange for.
0: It was for a minor stake in equity. Okay. Yeah.
1: And that's going well. Yeah, very well.
0: Yeah. What What are some of the challenges
1: you find that a Montreal startup faces being in the city, um, as opposed to being in a more startup centric city like New York or Silicon Valley, San Francisco, that kind of space?
0: I would say um, access to capital would probably be the biggest one, in terms of my experiences. Um,
1: you find there's a shortage of of fundraising opportunities.
0: Here? Yeah, there's a limited amount of VCs that are with with a, a multiple a limited amount of VCs with numerous and numerous startups that are trying to chase them. Whereas from from what I hear is, and where we're obviously going to go to is to look for funding. Elsewhere as well, so that we can have more opportunities. Because from what I've been told and the experiences that that that, I, that I've had and the conversations I had is that in in other areas, well, mainly the U.S., um, is that there's a lot more VCs that you know are trying to chase those good startups. Um, so there's a lot less competition for startups and more competition on the VC side. Whereas here it's kind of flipped.
1: And I guess the the limitation of of VCs also means that there's um, kind of a a lack of VCs that have experience in your field, not necessarily in the uh, landscape materials field, but you know, most of the time when you want to partner with a VC, you're looking for someone that a VC that is maybe funded, value. Yeah. Uh, yeah, value add VC, and that yeah. would mean someone that has gone through this before with another company that they have funded, right? So because there's a, a, a limited number of VCs here it's hard to find to be matched with a vc that has also had that experience of building a marketplace a, is what you're right, saying yeah right. the the way your company is structured
0: so there's probably within montreal and and probably include toronto in this there's maybe like 15 vcs that have decent records of you know funding and and working with i guess successful marketplace businesses so yeah it is you're trying to you hear stories and even of these successful companies, they approached fifty to sixty VCs before they got a yes. Mm-hmm. Whereas now you have fifteen VCs to go after, you're probably not likely to get a yes. Is lower. Yeah. So that's some of the
1: the challenges of being a startup in Montreal. What are some of the advantages of being in this city?
0: There is a big community, and I would say a very open and helpful community. So the commu- and community of other startups and even the VCs themselves—they're if they're not going to fund in you. That they're willing to still put in the effort, meet with you, talk with you, give you advice, and all for free. I mean, mm-hmm. so I would say the generosity of the community is is a big benefit. There's a lot of events. There's a lot of networking you can do within the community, I and mean, there's a lot of free advice you can get, which is the knowledge of of speaking with someone that's been through it or that's experienced it is is is. Very- Lots of
1: events as well to attend and meetups and.
0: Yeah, yeah, there is, and people are always willing to to lend a To know, hear right? you out. Yeah, exactly. Do
1: you have you also found that you've benefited from some of the uh, economical advantages of being here, such as lower cost of salaries. living, cheaper yeah. salaries. Um, you know, exchange rate is favorable to you know if you're doing business in Florida in the U.S. Your exchange rate is better as well here.
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, right now we've. We set up a U.S. dollar account, so we don't get the exchange rate until we transfer the money over. But yeah, it's definitely, you're, we're earning 30% more profit by getting our revenues from the U.S. would
1: translate into your numbers
0: here. Yeah. The other benefit, 100%, is the salaries. And I would say as a tech community itself, Montreal is becoming more and more demanding for um, tech employees to want to come work here. So... We ha- we're not at that level where we're bringing in outside um, labor and outside um, developers, whatever it is. But I can imagine at that point, it's Montreal's got a name for itself. It's a friendly city to live in in terms of the cost of living, um, which then helps on the side of salaries for a company, especially if you're running your head office here.
1: Hypothetically, I could see the future. And I come back five years from now and I tell you, Go Materials is a huge success. What does Go Materials look like to you in that in that situation?
0: So, let's start in like 30 years out and step it back cuz where where I like to take it is 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 where we ultimately want to go and you know, the vision for our company is to be the hub that fulfills the needs for any construction job anywhere. We want contractors to be able to connect with our store on every level of their job. So, with Go Materials, it can help manage your projects as a PM. You can then order your materials with their with our, our technology, kind of like what Alexa does at your home. You can speak to her and then you can use Amazon to, to do that stuff.
1: To fulfill orders, yeah. Yeah,
0: so taking a step back from there, in five years from now, if, if we are success, Obviously, we're expanding into more states, we're gaining more market share, but then in terms of the technology we're bringing, we really want to start focusing on the inventory side of things, either having a good prototype or kind of on the edge of of being able to get that data and, and have a seamless inventory management where we can connect with all our vendors and that would help us efficiently, very operationally and, you know, start building out the vision of our business. That's really, in terms of where we would see ourselves as so success for five years from now.
1: Mark Elliott, co-founder and CEO of Go Materials. To discover more startup founders and companies in Montreal, visit MontrealStartups.ca.
0: Obviously, we talked about my early childhood when I when I was growing up and. Um, I just uh, I want to give a shout out to my dad because he's obviously in hard times right now and um, he's very very sick and I've been at the hospital with him for the last two weeks Um, and he was a big role model in my life and and shaping me into who I was and the entrepreneur I'm kind of becoming and 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 growing up to be so just want to say that
1: this episode is in memory of Mark's father Bruce Elliott who passed away after this recording on April 3rd 2019.